Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Uh, joining us now on the phone, our first chance to talk with her, the president of the University of Manitoba Students Union, the new pres, Jaylene Dela Cruz. Uh, good afternoon. Nice to talk to you. Good afternoon, Hal. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. And uh, congratulations on the new post as president there. Thank you so much. It's definitely a baptism by fire for sure in the middle of a global pandemic, but the team's going to do a great job this year. We're excited to get started. Um, I've got a couple things I want to talk to you about, but I did see a news release uh, from you. I believe that came out today, this morning, um, mm-hmm. commenting on uh, some of the help for students announced by the Premier yesterday. Give me your thoughts. Yeah, so um, yesterday we did see later in the day, and I think one of the reasons why uh, my initial interview with you folks was rescheduled um, was an announcement from Pallister um, with regards to the Manitoba Scholarship and Bursary Initiative. Um, So they increased this uh, by $5 million, and um, in addition to this extra support, um, they also increased the ratio of um, support matching the fund, funds raised by the institution um, from one to two to a one to one ratio. And uh, the University of Manitoba Students Union and the entire team here, we welcome any support um, that comes in the form of bursaries and making tuition more affordable for students, especially during times that are this unprecedented and difficult for students who unfortunately are vastly marginalized in our society. Um, one thing that uh, we did want to acknowledge and make sure does not get lost in the mix is that accessible education is multifaceted. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And while lowering tuition is ideal and extra support for MSVI um, is an incredible step in the right direction, I do believe that we still need to put pressure on the province for the institutional cuts from year to year that go to post-secondary education and really, really do hollow out um, the experience that students get. Yeah, and, you know, that uh, gap that's there uh, between, you know, where students and you're at and, and the government, whether it's the Pallister government or, or other levels of government, I guess you would deal primarily with the province, that gap is going to widen now, I would imagine, because of the cost of COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's been said time and time again, Students work hard now in the institutions that they are studying at so that they can work even harder when they graduate. And because of this, a win for students is a win for the entire community, I would say. And if you want to see tuition get more affordable, resources more accessible, and if you want to see that relationship, that gap, shrink between the province and post-secondary students, I do believe that you need to invest in students. And by investing in students, the province really does invest in itself. And you announced, uh, you mentioned the uh, the funding uh, help yesterday. Is enough being done, in your opinion? As you said, every little bit helps, but is enough being done, or were you hoping for more? Well, you know how I do not think that there will ever be enough that is done. Um, when we're talking about marginalized students or students who are facing hardship during this time, whether it be job insecurity or just uncertainty and personal circumstances and the online shift, um, all of these things from technology to ensuring that students have access to affordable, accessible health care, um, post-secondary education and supporting students should never just be an option, I think, to the province. It should be a priority. And uh, time and time again, um, we're seeing money being thrown at problems and no real investigation into how these 
um, how these extra supports are really trickling down and being utilized by the institutions. And I do think that the University of Manitoba and in meetings that I've had this week has been doing a tremendous job in um, being proactive to the COVID-19 situation and ensuring that they're doing the best that they can do um, to give students access. Um, Even right now, I'm in talks with administration um, with regards to a program that could possibly um, allow students to uh, borrow um, devices and things like that if they do not have access to it. And I think small things like this, small things like um, supporting post-secondary education, no matter what time of the year it is, no matter whether or not we're in a global pandemic, um, needs to be the reality. Otherwise, students will feel like they're getting lost in all of the conversations that are being had and thrown around. That's a really good point about, you know, tablets and things like that because, you know, we talk about uh, school-age kids, younger students, and the challenges some of them have not having equipment or even Internet in some cases. A lot of those challenges would be for older students, post-secondary students as well, and, and that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot, so I'm glad you brought it up. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm very glad that I had the opportunity to talk to you today and use this platform to um, share some of these concerns uh, that the student body has because, you know, we've seen an influx of all of these inquiries and concerns from very worried students who are in dismay now because of all these changes. And on top of staying uh, staying up to date with their courses and keeping up with tuition and learning how to get their textbooks and, and inf- class information in these new facets, there's so much more uncertainty that gets thrown around every single day. Sure. Now, a couple questions I'm curious about, and I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, with students now, uh, you know, they're enrolled in whatever program they're in, whatever their major is, whatever their area of interest is, they have aspirations to one day be working in that area, in that industry, in a career. Has COVID-19, in discussions with your members, uh, students at the University of Manitoba, Have any of them said, wow, I'm going to rethink the direction I'm heading in now because of COVID-19? I'm curious. Um, Personally, uh, being a student myself, um, I am studying sociology and psychology. I do have a lot of friends who um, are also in programs that do require um, internships or jobs that are in person and may not be able to make the accommodations necessary during um, a prime or I would say during Um, a heavy wave of COVID-19 would be students who are in engineering or seeking um, any kind of education or a future career in trades um, because those programs have been severely compromised as a result. And uh, personally, I haven't encountered students who are considering, um, considering changing career paths completely, but it's definitely been a learning curve trying to find ways around it and find ways to new creative ways to pursue your your um, your aspirations in this new reality that we're faced with. Sure, and it, and I understand that. I was just curious because it is very early on, right? We don't know much about this mm-hmm. virus yet. We don't know the real long-term impact, so I doubt people would be making decisions uh, about careers years down the line. But I, I was just curious. And then the other thing I've been reading about, mostly in the States, but I'm hearing bits of this in Canada as well, some students are saying, and you mentioned tuition and the high cost of getting an education these days, some students are saying, well, wait a minute, I paid all this money, thousands and thousands of dollars, to be taught in a classroom. And now I'm basically doing online classes i'm you know if i wanted that i would have paid for that would have been much cheaper in the first place 
yes, it's a pandemic and, and nobody can do anything about it, but some students in some jurisdictions that I've been reading about are saying, we want some of our money back. Hearing any of that? Um, we have actually seen quite a few DMs in our on our social media platforms, some students posting and tagging us about um, getting their money back for uh, the courses that they registered in. I do think that right now it puts um, the university in an awkward position because in order to make all these online shifts and in order to um, ensure that everyone has the resources that they need to excel in this new reality, as mentioned, um, they need that funding um, and they aren't getting it from the provincial government. And so um, right now, in drawing a parallel with the University of Manitoba, um, what the Students Union is trying to do is really raise awareness of um, currently, actually right now, um, before May 10th, I guess is the official deadline, um, students have been given the option now with the advocacy from um, Sue at the various levels of uh, the university governance um, to choose either a pass-fail option, to choose um, whether they want to completely drop the grade from their GPA or whether they want to even seek a VW or an authorized withdrawal. Um, and through an authorized withdrawal, they may even be eligible for a refund if their circumstances um, merit such. And are a lot of students seriously considering that, dropping it all together and saying, I'm going to start up when things get back to something closer to normal? The majority of students have um, been uh, fairly responsive and positively responsive, I should say, um, to these changes. And I think a lot of them are very, very grateful that um, there is this flexibility in the courses and that they're still able to get the credits that they initially intended at the beginning of this term. Um, and now I do think that right now it's all in the messaging and trying to ensure that all students know what their options are and the ins and outs of why those decisions are happening um, and ensuring that the students who are feeling the brunt of these impacts with COVID-19 and struggling to make ends meet um, know that there are services out there like the COVID-19 UM student um, uh, hardship fund as well as through the students union because we've seen student leaders put a tremendous amount of effort now um, in partnership with UMSU as well um, to create these um, these programs to help marginalized students like the international student population um, and like students who um, are also supporting families of their own um, and creating these systems to ensure that from every aspect we're addressing that um, students in hardship may need assistance. Jillian, thanks a lot for talking to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Peter Squire, he is the VP, the Vice President of External Relations at the Winnipeg Realtors Organization. Peter, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thanks a lot for waiting a couple minutes there so I could get oh. those calls on. So I was looking at uh, the April numbers. No surprise here, but it was a slowdown last month when it comes to real estate. Oh, yeah. I mean, we expected it. I mean, March, we, we actually had a better March than the previous year in a great first quarter. But we knew we were going to get hit like any other housing market due to the pandemic and due to the uh, measures, the emergency uh, measures the provincial government was taking and how everyone was, you know, uh, stay at home. And so, yeah, it it, it, it hit us. But I, I can say that... Um, you know, we're seeing a little slight uh, improvement in early May, but we'll, we'll have to see because the province is moving into a recovery plan now. And 
And we, we'd like to see us be part of that and getting people uh, back to work and busy. And, and that includes buying and selling uh, homes, you know, because we are uh, an important uh, industry that where people do need to get on with their lives. And, and that includes buying and selling a home if, if necessary. No question. And where is uh, real estate? Where are you realtors in phase one? Does this phase one of the reopening affect yeah. you guys? Yes or no? Or, or do you have well, to wait for phase two and, and well, further down? Out of, out of an abundance of a lot of precaution, I don't think it was a mandatory requirement, but we did shut down open houses in April and now we're restarting them, but, but under a lot of different restrictive measures, which we've uh, sought approval and worked with the overall industry with our provincial association and, and I think that's been run by our securities commission so we're doing it under abundance of caution so you're going to start to see a few open houses and that's really up to the vendor and of course the uh, you know people if uh, if they so choose and working with mm-hmm. their realtor but so we are starting that back again in in uh, in May which of course is a customary thing that you see during the spring market in particular. Um, and in terms of other measures, we're, you know, uh, we, we're now allowed to use digital signatures, which we were not up until this time on a temporary basis. And that certainly is important on the offer to purchase. So that saves people time and, and the concerns that they have to, you know, meet someone to sign documentation when that can be done electronically like it is done in in most other markets uh, across the country. So that's going to help. And we're doing other things like uh, uh, live stream videos where the realtor does not have to actually hold a fiscal open house. They can go into the home and then take people through it on a, on a tour and set a time and, and, and show them throughout the property as best they can without the, them feeling they have to be there in person unless they get very serious about buying that property we've also added pictures to our mls listing so they our members can uh, input a lot more pictures on a listing to where you may not feel it would be necessary if you were normally showing homes the way we have up until the pandemic struck yeah hey back to the numbers uh, last month in april i think uh, uh listings were down i know uh sales down about 30 percent. i think correct me if i'm wrong on this i don't have the numbers right in front of me yeah you're right but, but, Hal, but our... what about but what about price did you see any effect on price oh, i'm yeah. curious yeah everyone uh you know that's always seems to be and i've heard it on your station as well as other media sources they all want to talk about price not just activity you know the i can happily say because i even can back that up just not not our average prices but we we've now signed on to what korea uh, our national association calls the home price index they've had it in place for quite a few years it's through our mls and we're now on board in 2020 and that tracks the typical home in the different mls areas and does an overall composite one for the entire market and also looks at single family and condos and for the composite starting in, in january and I, I did check the april numbers uh we're still up we're still solid and and tracking along we haven't seen any dip in in price where we saw a little dip which we have seen in the and even in 2019 and 2018, to a lesser extent, we've seen condos uh, fall back a little bit, as they did in, in April. But overall, our, our single-family homes and, and our general composite price is still holding firm. 
uh, you know, and, and a lot of the, the commentary out there, certainly from national economists, is that this is a pause and more a freeze in the market. It's not as if our market wasn't performing well up until the pandemic. And with the government supports that we're seeing, especially from the federal government, to backstop people in, in these times to get them through it, uh, we don't think there'll be a lot of panic sales that people say, I, at least that's our initial expectation. And, and hopefully if we can get people back working again, which we're starting to do, that will help, help people get through it. And then they can go on with their plans with, uh, in terms of real estate. I think in many industries, real estate is one of them, Peter. I think if this proves to be a pause, and I think you're right, we're starting to see some things reopen. If COVID-19 numbers don't get out of hand, money has never been cheaper. I mean, if, if you have a job, if you're working, lucky to be working, and your life is stable and you're looking to buy a house, boy, money is cheap right now. It's, it's a perfect opportunity for people that are looking to buy. Well, that's that's the difference, again, between uh, Winnipeg and a place like Toronto. I know we, we've talked about this before, you know, Hal. Um, when we have the prices that we have, um, the, the, the risk is that much more minimized. If you're buying a million-dollar home and you're worried about your job or, or your future, I mean, and the other thing you have to keep in mind with our affordable pricing, housing is a long-term investment. So if, if we're all on, on the page, which I know I think a lot of us are, uh, that we are going to get through this, they are, and, and as we're starting to, uh, then you're not buying the house to own it for a month or two and then sell it. Uh, right. you, you're planning, it's in, especially in Winnipeg, most of our sales within our market region, even outside Winnipeg, are, are, it's a longer-term investment for people. It's definitely a lifestyle longer-term investment. So they, if they believe, obviously, that they're going to be employed and they have a good future, why would they not take advantage of the, the low interest rates and the affordable market that we have right now? And Peter, a real quick answer here on a final question. We're down 30% last month, sales, uh, real estate sales in Winnipeg down about 30%, as you said, and as I pointed out, not uh, unexpected. How are we doing compared to other markets? Are other markets feeling it more than we are? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I actually just wrote about it, uh, Hal. Uh, uh, I write, too. Uh, yeah, no, we're, we're actually doing better uh, when I looked at poor Calgary, which is hit with a double whammy with the oil and gas mm-hmm. sector being yeah. so depressed, uh, they were down 64% in sales in mm-hmm. April, and Toronto was down, the GTA was down 67%. I haven't checked on Montreal because they've been performing in Ottawa. I'm sure there's some other markets that, that you know, uh, yeah. did better than that, but, but sure. some of the markets certainly have taken a bigger dip than we have. Peter, thanks very much for this. I really appreciate it. No problem, Helen. You stay stay well and safe. Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling, connexuscounseling.ca. Carolyn, good afternoon. Hey, Hal. How are you? I'm good. Um, how are you today? I'm well. I love to see the sun shining. Even though it's a little cool out, it's just it's nice to know that spring is coming. And when I look out my window where from where I'm talking to you, I can begin to see the green leaves on the trees, and that. We can use whatever we can to feel hopeful these days, and so that is giving me hope. Well, you know what? And listen, we've got to talk at some point here this half hour about Brendan Leipzig and the things he said. Uh, but maybe let's get to that in a bit. Let's talk about happier things 
uh, to begin with here. You talk about being outside. It is a bit cool today. I was reading this story, and maybe talk about the value of being outside and enjoying the backyard and, and, and stuff like that. We've talked about this before, but a new study says spending time in the garden, and whether you're being physical out in the garden or whether you're just enjoying the garden, um, it really makes you healthier. 71% of people who use their backyards reported general good health compared to 61% who don't use their yard. And um, I thought that was really interesting. Just being outside uh, can make you healthier and, and feel better. It's true, right? Research is telling us, but that's something that instinctively most of us already know, that that when we have a chance to be amongst nature and be in the grass and be amongst the trees and just enjoy sunshine and the air and all of that goodness, that there is a groundingness to it. Um, and it gives us something that's really important. Um, it gives us purpose and meaning and sort of reminds us about the bigness of the world. Sometimes when we feel like our problems are so big and then you go into this big open space and you see how big the sky is and you can watch the clouds, it just sort of can fill your spirit and refresh you in a way that actually is really important to us and in a way that people, when they spend hours and hours and hours in front of their screens, can forget just the value of take a break, go outside, spend a few minutes in your backyard or in the park down the street if you're living in an apartment, all socially distanced, of course, um, that being outside is really good for us, for sure. I'll tell you what, today it's great being at home, and I'll tell you why. This is the first time this has happened in all the time that I've been doing the show from the home studio here. Jackie, in the last 20 minutes, started making, cooking, and making her mom breakfast burritos, right, that she takes over for her mom. And I'm telling you, it's making me crazy. My mouth is watering. <laughs> I, I want to go out and have some, and I kind of almost can because I'm that close to the kitchen, but it's making me crazy. The door to my, my studio is closed, but uh, if I'm not here, if, if, if when you're done talking, I don't answer you, that's why. <laughs> if all of a sudden it goes silent, I will know yeah. that I lost out to breakfast burritos. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, let's talk about Brandon Leipzig, this Winnipeg hockey player, plays with the Capitals. And, um, you know, we listen, we can't say what he said, uh, but we can tell you the things that were said were horrible. And he has apologized. Um, does an apology make a difference when somebody says something as horrible as, as the stuff that was said by him? Does it, does an apology matter, Carolyn? Should, should he be forgiven? Or, or how do we treat this? Well, I think uh, part of we will sort of suspend some of our judgment and as we see how things roll out because apologies feel pretty hollow if um, we don't see some follow-up um, restitution or sort of repentance, some ways to make up what he's done. I think what we saw there is, you know, I think we all say things in private that we wouldn't say in public. Sometimes we forget that social media is never private, that things can get said. And I think it's unfortunate when people... Um, are in a friend group such that saying things like he said is going to give him points and it's sort of a sense of belonging or a sense of acceptance by criticizing and being critical of other people. That isn't actually true belonging when you are part of a group um, because you are tearing people down rather than building people up. And yet some of that locker room talk amongst guys, and I, I use those with air quotes reluctantly, but that should not be okay where you can say those sorts of things 
and have it not only be ex- like that, that, that gives you a sense of being a part of a group. Like it, you would like to think that he, people, when they say those things are going to be shut down and be, you know, in no uncertain terms that told that that's not okay. When he says that in a way that increases a sense of belonging so that it encourages him to continue to say that, that, that he doesn't get a response that teaches him not to do that anymore. This is not only about his comments. This is about a larger culture where people talk like that and they get away with that. And that's not okay. It's just not okay. And so I think probably one of the reasons why people are so bored by it is because we recognize that there are times when each of us talks in private in ways that if it was recorded or overheard, um, we w- it would not do us well. And it's a reminder to us all to use our words carefully and respectfully, not only in front of the people, but also behind their backs. That's not okay. Um, we have to learn to speak positively and build other people up. And if we haven't got something nice to say about other people that aren't in the room, we don't say it. Yeah. You use the term locker room talk, and I've, I've heard that a lot today from different people. Um, I've, over the years, probably engaged in what people would call locker room talk, but I don't think it ever went to that level, or if it did, and I can think of at least a couple of occasions where things were said in my presence that I said to friends, and not just friends, but acquaintances, and said, whoa, that's, you know, that's unacceptable. That's crossing a line. There's one thing about having a couple of beers with your buddies, and, and women do this maybe too over a glass of wine, but a line gets crossed, and I think it's important to what you just said, it's important that if we're involved in a conversation like that, whether it's in person or, or on social media, as this one was done, and, and the Instagram account apparently was hacked. Wherever that conversation happens, I think, and everybody's got a different line, I understand that, but when it crosses your line, you need to say something. And that requires a certain sort of courage, right? But I think it's important to know what your values are, to know what you find to be okay in a conversation, and when people say things about other people that you know cross that line, It's not easy. It requires a certain sort of courage, and I think it can be done with a sense of humor, but just to let people know, hey, that's a line you don't want to cross here. That, this is, this is not how I, I'm not okay with people talking about other people like that with me. Um, that's not, that's, this is not okay. And you can very quickly train that kind of conversation out of a, of a friend group with just one or two comments like that. And I think as men do that with each other, then you get far less disrespect. And I think, when you do that sort of thing in private and you, like you say, sometimes over a couple of beers and you think, oh, it doesn't matter, we can get it, it objectifies women, it is, it, it just shapes, even if you say it, I it didn't really mean it, I was just, you know, it was just locker room talk behind, like, it shapes the way that people think about each other and we want to be in a world where we are respectful and kind and build each other up and we don't have that sort of misogyny in anywhere, at any level, in in or out of the locker room. Getting a couple text messages on this, Carolyn, as we talk at 204-780-6868. One says, regarding the player uh, who made the vulgar comments about women in general, if his comment was directed at only one person, would the situation be treated any differently? That was going to be my next question, because some of the comments are directed at individuals. How does an individual who has those things said about them and now it's gone so public. How does that person handle that? I can't imagine. I mean, remember, I'm the I'm the kid, right, who had the weight problem all his life, and I dealt with that crap at different levels, uh, at different points in 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 my life. And I know, for me, 
it made me stronger. It made me want to be what they didn't think I was. Not everybody handles it that way. Talk about that because some of these comments are horrible. It's about individuals and how do they recover now that this has gone so public. And I think, how that it also makes you an advocate to say, I don't want to let other people do this to other people, right? You know what this is like. Um, there are, so when I think about that, I think about the four self-conscious affects, um, the, which are shame, guilt, humiliation, and embarrassment. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Humiliation is that sense of, Somebody's telling me I'm bad. I feel awful about it. I feel my face go red. I get, I want to disappear. I'm hot and I'm really feeling really uncomfortable. But humiliation says, you're doing that to me, but I don't deserve this. And I think although people, those individuals are, are going to feel humiliated, I'm hoping there's a sense where they're not feeling ashamed. They're feeling humiliated, which says, this says way more about you than about me. And when people are telling this story, it says something about the person that said it, not about the person that is having the comments said about them, because none of us are perfect as we go through this world. Um, most of us are not model sticks in. And so when I, if, if I should hear about who those individuals are, this, there's no judgment about me towards them at all. This is about looking at the person who said it and said, hmm, I'm wondering if you can do better because what you did there was not... That was not okay. And one quick note to this. Um, Twitter is looking, apparently they're doing a, a limited trial of this. Twitter is looking at, as you uh, type out a tweet, Twitter is going to say to people in this trial, it may not be everybody, I was just reading about it today, Twitter may go, whoa, are you sure? Like you said a couple mm. things here that maybe you want to reconsider. I'm not saying that even applies in this case, in in the uh, Brendan Leipzig case. I don't think it does. I, I I don't think anything would have helped to stop him from saying some of those things. Apparently, I, but is that maybe a good idea? Because I think all of us have maybe said something we regretted and wished we could pull back. Maybe that is a, a good safety net. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think what they're doing is there's a bit of self-editing there, right? Are you sure? And I think mm. hopefully we would all do that for ourselves. You read it over and you look at it and say, am I really right. comfortable with sending this out into the world? And even if I'm sending it to an individual, is this something that I would feel proud to own and acceptable to own? And that you do that self-editing yourself. Um, and if Twitter's going to help you, like I'm all for whatever we can to have people have some sober second thought that social media, the temptation of it is that you can blurt out something anonymously in a way that we would never say those things out loud in person, um, knowing that people could overhear us. And so if we can find ways of building some of those um, those self-editing and the sober second thought kind of steps to encourage people to really think and be thoughtful about what they are saying, I think that's helpful. Um, I think this has been a reminder for everybody that you don't, you have to be careful when you put out what you think is a private message because we, there's no guarantee that things are private. Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.